Good morning and welcome to your Daily Game Face. I'm Dr. Kim Lannon and it's the first show of the new year. I think yeah. it's exciting. Yes. I'm exhausted today, just so you know. Already? Yep. <laughs> it's not even 10 o'clock yet. This is why. Oh, I just saw myself on the 22nd lag on the screen, just so you know. And I yeah. saw myself clearing my tooth of the food product that I had prior. That's awesome. What? Thanks. Really? Okay. Um, so I'm tired because, okay, so I had this amazing, I never get time off, ever. Mm -hmm. I work even when I'm not working. Even when I'm traveling for work, I'm still working. So I, I can't say that I was fully off because I worked because I took a couple client calls because there were some emergencies, right? But from last Thursday, no, actually last Friday to yesterday, I had a little time to just be. Nice. And I had good sleep and I was well rested. And then, and then I had to sleep with my child cat who loves to, when oh, she God. misses me, we have a full night of being awake because yeah. she has to circle my head 700 times and she has to sit on my chest and my side and, and I can't neglect her and, no. <laughs> and shove her out of the room. So this morning I'm back to feeling like I did <laughs> last Wednesday. So the one of the problems of ownership of pets, if you allow them to sleep in the bed with you, which I do, mm -hmm. um, is exhaustion. Yes. And so therefore, why do we own pets? Well, I, because well, we own pets because I was thinking this last night while my dog was keeping me up at about one oh, o'clock in the morning. See, yeah, yeah, we own pets because they make us feel wonderful. They are unconditional loving beings, and they allow us to give without any other strings attached. Mm -hmm really and and they do so many things for our blood pressure our sugar levels i mean they're very good for mental health which is why are they really i do behavioral health in animals with people and you know animal assisted therapy and why i work with stuff with big cat rescue and so on and so forth that wasn't the thought i had last night and it wasn't the thought you had last night the either the thought i had last night was oh, <laughs> i can't read on it <laughs> because i had Echo, the Bengal, with me, right? The yep. little Bengal. She's like right there, and then I oh, have. Oh, Echo's a Bengal. She is. Oh, okay. yes. Yeah. But she's not an F one. You know, she's a Bengal, yeah. but she's not F one. But um, because that would be a no no. No. Um, in my what is she? Work. She's what? What is she? Well, she's a she's a purebred Bengal, but she's not like the F one. Like she's, she's not, not on the scale. She, she's what? She's not on the scale. She's not on the scale. Yeah. Right. right. So, um, and then I have my little blue Russian girl, my Russian blue, who sits in my chest, mm -hmm. and she's like a tanker. I call her my A-frame. <laughs> and then I have my little cancer boy, Mush, who sleeps wherever he wants, yep. feet, legs, whatever. And then there's Bean, who is the youngest, and he just bounces all over the place. And then Mimi, who is... <laughs> wow, she's a lot, a lot of cats. Yeah. So we, I sleep wherever they don't. And it's like a contortion. So I had four days of really good rest, and yep. and then last night not so much. Yep. And then do you watch thinking, my cat from hell? I do with Jackson with Jackson Galaxy. Yeah. Yeah, he's awesome. I just saw an episode the other day with yeah. an F two Bengal. Aww. Yeah. Well, because so when you he have had two, F he had an F five and an F two. So if you have if you have F one F two right if you have higher the higher level purebreds like that one. You're technically not supposed to own them, right? Yeah. So because it's what an F one. Yeah. So and just them. just for those who don't know, that's generations away from being basically feral. Right. Wild and so animals, yeah. when you're when you're closer to domesticated purebred, then mm -hmm. it's fine. But you have more problems. So if you own a savannah cat, a serval, a caracal, a bengal, all the higher end F one types, right? The yep. high end purebreds, 
they have a lot of, um, they're wild. So when you have them in your house, <laughs> your house becomes a pea zone and yeah. a, you know, a, a tree for them to <laughs> climb on yes. and, yeah. and, you know, and all those things. So, so they're, they're wonderful cats, but they're, they come with some issues when you have the purebred. And so that's why there's really not a good thing to have private ownership and buying, treating, trading, touching, selling of those types of yeah. cats, which is why the Big Cat Act should be really something. We haven't talked about that yet. No. But that will be a show coming because okay. we just passed the house with the Big Cat Act and we won't go into politics today because the Senate is where it's supposed to go. And right now we're, you know, where we are today in the Senate. Yeah. Um, so let's go over to a different topic. But so there's my opening for the New Year's that I was very rested and now I'm exhausted. Okay. And Welcome to 2021. I know, right? Uh, so I was thinking in my head and thinking, oh, my gosh, now I'm, I'm practicing what I preach. And I'm thinking I have to make it tonight through clients all the way till 730 and then go to the gym because I didn't get up this morning to go because she kept me awake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm not going to make it through. Um, anyway, Lou, am I boring you this morning? No. Why? I don't know. Because you look like you were. I'm listening. OK. Ooh, are you tired? I'm tired. Because of your dog. Yeah. All right. A couple um, nights in a row. Well, then let's let's get all excited. We're going to talk about codependency. Remember last week when we <laughs> oh that lit you up? Pets to codependency. There Excellent. you go. So um, it, we're going to talk about codependency today because it came up last week. Yes. And you said we should do a code uh, a show on that, and I said we should. And given that codependency is such an underlying issue, actually, of a lot of mental health issues, and um, and. A couple of things I want to say about that, too, because I was listening to some old stuff that we have done and, you know, some questions that have come up. And people often misconstrue mental health as being the end of the spectrum that's like crazy and yeah. bad. It's mental health issues or mental health is not the stigma of you've got to be crazy. Right. It's the it's the catch all wording of when you have stress, that's a mental health issue when it's not an issue as in disorder, but it leads yep. to disorders. Right. But it's more of like just the being able to talk about when people have stress in their life, but it's mental health issue. You have sure. a mental health issue. If you're having a hard time with your boss and you can't manage and you get angry and punch a wall, that's a mental health issue, right? Cause it's emotional dysregulation. Yes. So when I talk about mental health issue, I'm just really speaking to the fact that it's like kind of the umbrella terminology of kind of the experience of emotional regulation or dysregulation you're having on that continuum when you're experiencing something negative. Right. Okay. We got that. All right. Well, not everybody gets that, you know, because there's a stigma to it. It's like, oh, I don't have a mental health issue, but you're sad all the time and yeah. you don't get out of bed. Well, that's not a mental health issue. You know what I mean? So because people don't want yeah. that. It's just, okay, what is it then? What's sadness? You well, know, yeah. the wordsmithing on it. Health is tired. Health is cold. Health is not necessarily a, a clinical diagnosis. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's, it's a same spectrum with mental health. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, mental health or, you know, emotional health maybe that's a better way of putting it. emotional health has been such a long process of fighting a stigma to it you know if you go back and yeah. just look at movies and how one flew over a cuckoo's nest and you know you, you that's how people still see mental health treatment or they think of you know if you think of mclean hospital um i used to work at mclean i was a, a rehab coordinator and director there for the geriatric population people think it's you know what you see in um beautiful mind and you know crazy asylums you right. know and certainly there was a time for that but current day and age that's not how it is and certainly there's unique experiences in some places but that's not how it is but in the mainstream everyday kind of life um talking about emotional well-being emotional health 
it's kind of a staple for everyone, given yeah. given what everyone's in right now. And people, if you ignore it, I mean, I think it's one of the hottest topics on almost every station I see in the morning when I'm at the gym or if I'm working out or I'm, I'm doing something in the house. Sure. I'm hearing constantly people saying, you know, getting someone on the Today Show or something talking about, oh, you know, what's the health issue today for mental health and wellness for the week or because of the pandemic. So it's that thing because people are constantly cycling yep. through. The, here's another three weeks of lockdown. Here's, you know, Europe just went into another lockdown. Scotland just went into another lockdown. We're probably going to go into another lockdown. L.A.'s facing a total disaster. And then people are saying, well, what do we do about the emotional well-being? So coming back to why do we talk about it in terms of codependency bringing it back around codependency has to do with that emotional dysregulation that happens that starts you're, you're taught as a child and it's it's nurtured into you it's not genetic it's it's taught to you no, to you become, therapists always going back to childhood well so here's well, <laughs> yeah. i'm gonna i'll talk about that in a second because yeah. there's there's people that have that thought is so you're taught you're nurtured, you're socially developed. Mm -hmm. It could be parents, it could be grandparents, it could be teachers. I mean, the primary people that you see the first three to four years of your life. By the way, you're I'm socially good. developed intentionally and unintentionally. Right, well, yeah. right. So it's, yeah. a, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, I was thinking of a different word, but yes, it's an unintentional, intentional movement of, of, of teachings around you right. that, you know, that you know, shaping you all the time, modeling. Right. Um, however, Codependency usually breeds codependency. So there is, if you want to look at it as like a genetic line, you can usually see it come down the line. So when, you, when you're talking about addiction, and we talked about this last week after the show a little bit about how fascinating, yeah. in, in all due respect to the stories, how fascinating a person who has come from addiction into recovery, their stories are, they all have the same thread in them. And they're pretty strong thread of codependency because codependency is is modeled both socially, um, visually, auditorily. It's taught in messaging, narratives, um, definitely habit, behavior, yeah. uh, all those things. Go I'm, I'm going to ask you because of the way you just stated that, and I'm going to include addiction into this as well. You did use the word genetically. Codependency is genetic or modeling? It's, what was the second word? Modeling. Okay, so so I use it loosely. So okay, it's yeah. it is modeling, right? But it's genetically in terms of if you can see me air quoting, it's genetic. It's not truly biological. Passed down from it's generation. Passed down from generation to yeah. generation because we do what we see, right. we see what we do. And usually when you have someone who has addiction, that's genetic. Yeah. Addiction that does have a so genetic that component. Will pass, yeah. Addiction will mm -hmm. pass and then the codependency piece because right. people with addiction Ten, all, all have mm -hmm. codependency. So, and I, and I don't say all usually, but in those cases, I can say all. Not some, not many, all. I mm -hmm. mean, it's just not something. It's a, it's a dual diagnosis of personality pieces to sure. that. Yeah. Most, most people won't say that, um, but in your, when you're in this field and clinically, and you see as much as I've seen, they, I can't think of someone who hasn't come through my office or my practice or in my hospital work that's not right. so so yes it's genetic but it's genetic in that the addiction pulls through the genetic line and then the modeling is the nurture part of it so behaviorally genetic yes <laughs> right so so hopefully people yeah. are getting the picture yeah. of what it really means um because it's not an actual gene um and so here in saying that so addiction when people have addiction um 
in their family, that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be an addict, right? It doesn't mean you're going to right. have the gene triggered. Just like people with schizophrenia come with the gene, doesn't mean they're going to be triggered and have have full blown schizophrenia. Oh, interesting. Just that they're yeah. going to be more likely to. So, so if you liken it to schizophrenia, schizophrenia has to have gene a gene in the in a first degree parent. So, mom or dad have it, you're going to have the gene. Whether that gets triggered or not, I'm using this very loosely. I mean, yeah. There's lots of science behind this, but. Um, whether that gets triggered or not is a total separate thing, right? And usually between the ages of 18 and 25, 26 is when that happens. Now, that doesn't mean when you're 45, you couldn't be triggered and then have a schizophrenic, a psychotic break. But it just is unlikely as you get older with it, if you pass that window with the gene there. But mm -hmm. if your mom or dad have it, you're going to have it. Yep. If your grandparent has it and, you know, someone else in the family down the line, it the chances go down a little bit, but nonetheless, right? right? So with addiction, now we don't know the exact that I know of, the percentages like that, like we do schizophrenia, but we do know that it passes along. And through twin studies over the years that they've done, some very unethical back in the day, um, <laughs> of taking babies from their parents and splitting them up and then giving them to families, one that had yeah. addiction and one that didn't. Nice. How, I, yeah. yeah, it's awesome. It's totally illegal now. <laughs> um, and um, Phil Donahue did a show on the triplets. Remember the show that came out? Um, I always forget the name of it. Of course, I'll have to remember. Now I was going to, if anyone's listening out there, mm -hmm. try to remember. It was a very popular show last year. Maybe, Lou, you can look it up. Um, it was the triplets. And they were all taken <laughs> illegally from their parent, and they were split up, and they were reunited eventually, and they really made TV history with, and then one of the, one of the young men committed suicide because of his issues. Well, anyway, it's a great show to watch if you want to know more about, like, how this actually falls out. Um, back to the we're back to the nature versus nurture. Right. So yeah. so that was what one of the things is is really trying to figure out. And the answer is it's both, right? Yeah. So it's it's yeah. both, and it's going to be it's going to be that when you look at these families that have some of these issues in it, then you're going to be more likely to see like which thing stands on its own to really drive it. Is it a genetic push or is it a nurture? So I have a friend that was adopted, for instance, and he was adopted into a family that has an alcoholic father. And so his non-biological dad is an alcoholic. Now, he was born into what we can see on paper, no addiction, no issue, it was a totally you know, clean yep. mom, clean dad, just had to get right. But my friend is an alcoholic. He doesn't have the gene per se that we know of according to all paperwork and none of his other siblings have either but he was raised in a household of alcoholism and now he's an alcoholic yeah so you can see where some of these things happen and he's got a very codependent relationship with his mother so let me ask you this yes does he pass along a gene of addiction at that point um, so I would say in modeling he he would in modeling yes but not in actual physicality yeah. so in modeling he would so if we use that as a I'm going to try to think of like an interesting colloquial way to like have that down the line here. But um, yeah, he'd pass it along. And well, it's classic dual he, diagnosis, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple components. To right. This. Yeah. Right. So, so it's. And very, by the way, it can be 100, one or the other, I, I would imagine, yes. but it's usually a mix. It's usually a mix. So mm -hmm. that's so, so going back to the thing with codependency, and when I said, you know, it goes back to your family or your parents. Well, those are the primary people that you see when you're born for the, you know, primary yeah. caretakers. So whether it's your mother, your father, your grandmother, your uncle, usually, you know, that's where it is. Or you have 
um, a single parent or somebody, but it's usually that is there and sitting there. Now, codependency isn't always addiction. We're just using that as the example Mm -hmm. right now. Codependency is one of the biggest mental health issues that I see in almost all clients, and it comes in those little continuum forms, kind of like being a purebred versus an F1, right? Yeah. Is that it comes in those, like how I tie that yeah, together? Yeah, very nice. Ooh, yeah. All right. So when when you get those different forms of it, it's, it's actually relational. So codependency has to do with relationship. And when a person becomes codependent, they're trying to relate. And what they've been taught is that they don't. They won't have the self-esteem or the assuredness internally in their ego strength, their own reality, to be able to do it themselves. So they rely on and become dependent on other people to think, feel, do for them. So they emotionally dysregulate when the relationship is really separated mm-hmm. out. And then they emotionally regulate a little bit, but then emotionally dysregulate even when they're close because they're always in worry of that the, pers- the other person will leave them, the other person... Um, won't make the decisions for them. The other person, you know, they rely heavily on them. Mm -hmm. So if we look at developmental theory of children, there's a period of time in multiple theories, you know, psychodynamic theories, behavioral theories, um, cognitive theories, that there's a certain stage right around three to six years old, depending on the theorist, where uh, independence, age-appropriate independence, is supposed to be happening. Mm-hmm. And what usually happens is that when you do a good history on someone, you can find the little hitches, if a person's a good reporter, where you can find that there's been dependency built because the parent is either incredibly guilt sh- guilt or shame-making mm-hmm. or taking away from the child's initiative or industry from being able to go on out and do their, do their life in the age-appropriateness. So... For instance, I had a client many years ago that had a little girl that was five, five and a half. So she was right on that cusp of crossing over. And so she was, you know, the mother was getting a divorce. I'm laughing because I I know the story goes. So the mother was getting divorced from the father. The father had left the mother for a younger woman. Mm -hmm. And the little girl was an only child. And the little girl was stressing and having, you know, whatever, acting out behaviors according to the parents, whatever. So they brought her in to see me. And the mother was the one that brought her in the first couple times. And so when she came in, I got her kind of history, everything. And the mother wouldn't be in the room. And I finally, after maybe the second or third time, I said to her, we'll call her Sally. Sally, you know, you were supposed to go out this weekend to your play date and blah, blah, blah. Long story short, the mother, so the Sally reports, well, I didn't go. And I said, why? I said, you were looking so much forward to it. She said, well, mommy said. Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. Mommy said, and this is all it takes, Mommy said that if I went with her, I'd be leaving her just like Daddy, and I she'd be alone. Oh, my God. Right. And that's not, I mean, so for me, I hear this stuff all the time. So I'm like, I cringe in my head. Really? Like, oh, my God. Like, you just did, yeah. right? Like, you yeah. know. And I had a good relationship with the mother enough that towards the end of the session, I brought her in, and, I, and she's like, I'm in trouble, huh? <laughs> <laughs> she had that. Yeah. I said, well, you're not in trouble. We have to talk about this. Yeah. But she told her child, and she admitted, yes, she said, you know, you're leaving, you know, if you leave me. Wow. You're le- if you go to the place. So she bribed her and told her that she would take her to the movies and get her ice cream if she stayed with her because she didn't want to be left alone. So she put this very adult guilt yeah. of what had happened in a relationship with her husband onto this five-year-old. The five-year-old took it on and was heavily laden with guilt. So in, in review of multiple more sessions, this was happening a lot over the past year, year and a half, and it was during the time of the divorce. And so the now this 
this child is in her 20s. So we, we all have a little good laugh now here yeah. and there because I still see her. She comes back from college or whatever. But we laugh about, remember that day? Yeah. <laughs> right? Because that really, it was a teaching moment for mom. And I, and I remember really specifically saying, you're setting your child up for codependency at that point. Yeah. And she didn't know what codependency was. And so I, and I see that a lot in people. And you just, it's so commonplace that no one really knows that they're doing it. But because it, it's so automatic, but what it's doing is it's setting up a person to be super dependent on, you know, am I doing the right thing if I go do something else with someone else? Am I allowed to say no? If I say no, right. if I hurt their feelings, is that going to be on me or that? So even though that's not active in a five-year-old's mind, like a conscious, like we could have a conversation, right. it's in their mind consciously, but in their own age-appropriate way of interpreting that it's not good that I take initiative. It's not good that I'm industrious in the world. It's not good that I have friends because I don't want to abandon my mom because I'm supposed to be her t caretaker. Right. So that's a, one of my greatest examples in my practice of years gone by of how I've seen it grow into something. Now, that has no addiction to it. That's all just simply modeled. Yeah. Just narratively modeled and behaviorally modeled to that. And so the girl's doing really well. The mom's doing really well. But I think it was in large part because we found that right at that moment to go okay enough because that was so much pressure on that child now she has a little twinges here and there of of relational issues could we say they're related to that i would yeah because of how they've bared out and what they look like which i won't go into because i won't but the codependency piece is so specific and a great book for people if you if you don't do therapy and you haven't gotten out there to do any kind of work on this and you worry about what other people think too much and you don't you know make good decisions for yourself or you rely on other people to do that or you're fearing abandonment all the time and all these things is it's an old school book but it's melody Beatty's uh, Beatty's um codependent no more so i recommend all the people that see me who have addiction issues and in recovery they all read it they we work through it we talk about it we go through all the process because it's a really great book to give a universal shared experience to people to understand it without me having to explain it because it's harder when you can't see it but once you read about people's experiences and stories and then it's like a workbook and all of a sudden you see the patterns mm -hmm. of it and so so one of the best parts of that book why i bring it up is because um, that example I give is often what I see in people in general is that people will become victims in their relationships and then when they try to assert themselves they will become the perpetrator yeah. so that the other person will be angry that they're leaving or they're angry that they haven't given them what they want or so they become victims. Well, that's a pretty common dynamic isn't it? So that yeah. right which yeah. is why Codepend. I, you know, I don't know if a lot of other clinicians name it that, but I, because of the stuff I do with addiction and teaching about it to the counselors that I teach to be counselors, I've seen over the years that this is really <coughs> what it is. It's it's victimization that becomes perpetration. You know, you're 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 a victim, and then you become the person who's bad. How dare you? So if you took it and take it and look at addiction, and you look at someone who's had addiction, when they get healthy, the family. So I said this last week. When they get healthy. Take one family member that's really embedded with the codependency with this this addict, right? The person who's starting to do recovery and not be in addiction anymore, the healthier they get, the person who's codependent with them in the family will typically start accusing that person of addiction of being a, a perpetrator. You're doing this. How could you do this to me? How could you leave? Right. How could you, right? Yep. And it's, it's a very vicious cycle. Because they feel their role's being devalued. 
Right, yeah. because now their role is changing. Now they're not able to enable that person in the same way, or they're not able to participate in the addiction. And addiction isn't one person. Addiction is the family. And and when people, back in the day, I think people still feel this way, when they hear that, especially family members that aren't in active use of an alcohol or substance abuse kind of issue, they're, you know, hands off, like, that's not me, that's not true. But when you really explain it out to a family doing this work, then it's like, oh... <laughs> because it's like, yeah. well, you're enabling. Enabling is part of the addiction. If your child comes to you, or we'll take it off the kid, if your spouse comes to you or your girlfriend comes to you or your boyfriend comes to you and says, I need $100, and if you don't give it to me, I'm going to commit suicide. So you're feeling guilty. Yep. Like if you go to the, if you go on the play date, right? It's so, yep. it's, right? so if you don't do that, I'm going to kill myself. And the person's so afraid of being the cause of that, they give it over and over to their to their broke bank account or their deficit of selling and mortgaging homes and all these things and and so you know there's so many different great techniques to help people get out of this but it's it's really about when you're on that other side of the codependency is really stepping it back and saying okay don't give money anymore provide they need groceries buy them groceries if they need a coat you buy them a coat but no more cash yeah because you have to be able to say, well, what's the value here? So you're reteaching what didn't get taught originally, which is being able to be independent, not being pulled into the unhealthy piece, and not feeling guilty about it. So the codependency is unraveling the poor relationship to possibly make a better relationship and connect back in, or to break it off completely so that you can find better connections. So again, codependency is an addiction and codependency is the search for relationship, which is why people go to alcohol and drugs and shopping and eating. Yeah. Is they become dependent on the thing that makes them feel good. If it's not a person, it's booze, it's meth, yeah, or or food or having done a lot of addiction shows at this point and hearing a lot of things anecdotally, that almost seems like a universal turning point at the point where the support system around them stops enabling. And, and either gets to the point where they can't do it anymore or realizes that they have to take the stand. And it's often it's often extremely difficult for them to withhold help. Right. But because it's often a turning point. Right. Yeah. So it is so it is so in, in my professional opinion, it is the turning point. It's the hardest thing yeah. for people to do because I can't tell you how many <laughs> hundreds of parents I've had in my office in, you know, of some 20 something person that they're saying, I say, you cannot keep giving them money. Stop giving them yeah. money. And, he, and I give an alternative. Here are five ideas. And they're like, but I can't. Yep. Why? Because if I do that, they'll hate me. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'd rather not be giving them money. And I, and I put this as an example. So again, for addiction, you probably heard this is I say, if you give them a hundred dollars every single time, because you don't want them to kill themselves. Are you going to feel worse when you give them the $100 that has them overdose and die, or are you going to feel worse because you didn't give them the $100 and they found it somewhere else and it wasn't on you? Yeah. yeah. People don't think like that. It's like we, if you don't give it to them, that's on their own volition. If you do give it to them, you're actually participating in it, and people don't step back and look at right. it like that. You're, you're perpetuating the codependency. So being able to understand really where your role is in that. Um, now, if people aren't, that are listening aren't in addiction, just take codependency as relationship malfunction. So yeah. you're, you're 
you're and many people get into relationships <clears throat> not because they're both codependent because one is codependent and the other person's enabler which makes them both codependent right yeah. but it but it's usually a com it, you don't always get combinations they usually find each other they usually find each other yeah right so you have you have that many times and that's you know one of the reasons why in AA and NA and I don't know if people in it, in those in the A groups realize that but one of the reasons clinically why we don't like people dating while they're in the program yeah. is because AA and NA and all the A groups are support groups for people that have codependency. So why, yep. why would you get together? Which you know, standard rule of thumb: don't you know, don't blah where you eat. But yep. nonetheless, people do it. But that's one of the reasons why those relationships more often than not fail. Some work out, obviously, but more often than not fail because the codependency is so intense, and the fractures in the emotional ego are so intense that they can't get the connection that they need filled because it's trying to be connected with another person's broken as well. Right. So, two broken pieces of a puzzle. That kind try of the to definition fit. of codependence, actually. Right. Yeah. Right. So. Can I so, ask you a question? Yeah. Let's yeah. keep the analogy, the codependence addiction analogy. Um, together here because okay. one of the things dealing with addiction and again being involved in this anecdotally is that one of the things you have to do when you're dealing with an addict is you have to get into their mind frame which is so foreign to yours mm -hmm. people tend to imply their own frame of mind their own outlook on addicts and addicts are operating on a completely different system yes and that's often difficult for non-addicts to assimilate to so I want to ask you the question because I've been curious about this since you told the story about the mother and the daughter when you confronted the mother about what happened there, what was her mindset? What was her reaction? Because I had the reaction that I would have had, which is, oh, my God, I can't lay that on a five-year-old right. right, or a five-and-a-half-year-old. But obviously, she's in a different mind space. Right. She's not malicious. No. No. So Her mindset wasn't – so I know this answer because I talked to her. I was like, what were you thinking? Yeah. And so in, in after two sessions of talking to her about it, that she wasn't thinking – but she was thinking about herself and how she wasn't thinking about the impact it would have on her daughter. She was only thinking about her loneliness, her anger towards her husband, her, her sadness, sure. her needs, her wants, how to get them taken care of, and didn't realize that she would be building this thing with her daughter of being a nurturer, caretaker of the codependency. Did she, she had no idea. Did she realize she did it, or was it a moment of weakness? In other words, you you she get into not, a conversation she, and sometimes you say something oh boy i wish i hadn't said that repeatedly doing it yeah so she didn't realize she realized that what she was saying but she didn't realize it was doing anything damaging I because yeah. she she really framed it out that i'm i'm getting quality time with my daughter i'm going to the movies we're going to we're taking little trips we're doing so she buried yeah. it in this it's a good thing for me and my daughter versus it was really a good thing for her. She rationalized it. Right. Yeah. Minimized it, justified yeah. it, rationalized it, moved it forward. And then, but it was interesting because when I went out in the, in the waiting room and said, we need to talk. And she said, am I in trouble? <laughs> I think she knew. Yeah. She didn't know exactly, but she knew. Yeah. Was, she knew it was going to go to that because, and she just didn't know. And as soon as I said it, she was like, I didn't even, I didn't even think of that. You know, so it was really present that it was just more about like taking care of her needs in the moment and not seeing it as a damage. Right. So after she definitely did sought. And in the midst of a divorce, and newly right. after a divorce, you know, that's the fresh wound. Right. So that's what you tend to. Right. That tends to be high in your mind. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and yeah, and she was saying all kinds of other things, too, about being young and the girl and, yeah. you know, loading the deck. Yeah. You know, so but so I think that, but in, in many cases, 
that's that's what happens. I mean, so when people are when you talk about parents being responsible for modeling to their kids this behavior, it's not blaming parents. Going back to the top of the show when you said, "Oh, it always goes back to the parents." It's not blaming. It's about people do what they know and automatically just go through and say things not thinking, "Oh, this can have an impact." Yeah. You know, it's kind of like repeatedly saying to your kid, "You're so stupid." Yeah. Hmm. Even what it's like, well, well, I didn't mean anything by it. Well, but unfortunately, on a young mind, you did. But this comes back to the basic division between humans when two people are talking. Mm-hmm. What the person says and what the person hears right. are often two different things. Right. Because it's impossible for us to understand fully the context of the person we're talking with. Right. Right. But and you have to be aware of the fact that what you say isn't totally understood on the other end the way you mean it. Exactly, and especially when you look at little kids. So two things there. Little kids are sponges. Mm -hmm. So they're learning, 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 learning. They don't have yet the capacity at that age, you know, the five-year-old age, to understand the nuances. They don't have abstract reasoning. They don't have the cognitive development at that point. They don't have advanced empathy either. Right. They're just taking in concretely what they hear, what they see, what they do, what, you know, so that becomes their, their, you know, podium for knowing for knowing so so the five five and a half year old doesn't say well mommy's hurting right now that's why she said that right she's it's, she's thinking that's the truth get, sometimes you'll get a five oh and, yeah I can admit, yeah but it and you're surprised because you're like huh but it still misses a little piece of like how they don't have the self-reflection to say don't own it yeah. they still take it on and own yeah. it they understand that mom's hurting because you'll have little kids that will go up and say mommy don't cry yeah i know you're sad dad you know whatever but they don't own they don't realize that they shouldn't own that and right. that's why you often see little kids take on the responsibility of divorce yeah. it's their fault because they couldn't fix it and yeah. you know that's kind of one of the old old school kind of things that really does happen with little kids sure. and, and you know parent and so this is to the other point of when little kids are sponges like that i can't tell you how many countless even now contemporarily how many countless times i have parents who say who underestimate that their behaviors and their words and their actions and their day-to-day life impacts the mind of their child because they think that the child is a child and therefore they're just kids not a big deal they don't get it but they do yeah they also they do they also separate what they say from what they do right and they don't understand that what they do always has more impact than what they say right so they say i don't tell them to do that well but you show them right to do that or you have a right or you have a parent that says well i told them not to do that they're six yeah or they're 13. I told them not, not to do it. I told them to go do that. Well, they didn't because you didn't structure and follow through on it. It's the same. It's, oh, yeah. I mean, and that and it's the same thing. It follows up through. And, you know, it's the parent making themselves feel good for, I told them to clean their room. I don't know why they didn't do it because um, you've been telling them that since they were five. They haven't done it because you never followed up. And this is why they're still doing nothing. And that's why their room looks like a bomb went off in it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, in simplest forms, and and I get that all the time from parents will be like, why isn't my child cleaning, you know, their room? Well, partially it's when teenage parents ask me, and I'm like, well, because they're teenagers. (laughs) But also when you have really intense cases where there's, like, food hoarding and, like, you know, other stuff that's, like, not healthy in the room, it's because of that. It's because there has been very minimal structure, lots of do it this way, do this, do that, telling, but not doing as you see so the kids do what they see because usually the parents in those cases are doing exactly what the kid's doing it's the classic example we see it everywhere where the parent says to the kid if you don't behave we're leaving uh-huh. you don't do that once you just pick up the kid and leave right exactly and yeah. then when you're in the car you know why are we leaving 
well, you weren't under control. Right. Yeah, you yeah. didn't do whatever yeah. it was, right? Well, that's, you know, when I teach psych, psych 100, right, I always use the example when we do reinforcement and punishment and consequences about how <laughs> invariably, while I'm in the grocery store, it always happens in the grocery store, I'll be, <laughs> you know, someone in the other aisle is like, you know, little kids and the mother or father, and yep. don't hit your brother. And I'm always, because I'm like, oh, science project. I'm going to see what yeah. happens next because yeah. I know what's coming. Because usually I catch the tail end of a parent grabbing an arm, whacking the kid that they've just told not to hit their brother. Oh, no, you've not seen anyone whack a kid in a grocery store. And, and oh, oh, I oh, have. Oh, really? Oh, I've, I've seen grabbing, uh, grabbing. Grabbing, yes. You know, like by the arm yep. and like quick swat if no one's around. Oh, and they don't really? think anyone's around. And then, you know, and so I, I giggle when I histrionically present this to my class because I'm like, do not hit your brother as you're being hit because, yeah, right. you know, the big, you know, the hitting, you know, like, do not do as I do. Yeah, exactly. Do as I say. Perfect. But, it's, but this yeah. is a common yep. problem. And so when I say that I see it all the time, I don't see it every time I go to the grocery store. But inevitably, I see it at the grocery store. Sure. And it happens at least once or twice a year that I see it and it makes me giggle at the parent and, yeah. and I would report it if it was bad. This isn't like someone's beating their child. This yeah. is like, you know, the grab and like, I'm going to kill you, embarrassing me in the store thing. Yeah. Um, but it's just that, it's that reinforcement that the parent doesn't realize that they've just told do not hit your brother while they're hitting their kid yeah. or pinching their kid or, you know, taking them by the head. I know, I know. It's incredible. <laughs> and it's and it's a common, I mean, this isn't new. Like parents have been doing this forever, but it's to the point where you don't they don't realize, people don't realize that's shaping the child. Now the child that was hitting the brother is not going to get caught next time because they're going to devise a way to make sure they can still hit because they watched you hit. They're going to still hit, but right. they're going to do it in a way that doesn't get them caught in the same way so they can get away with it. And this is how people learn. Yeah. They modeled interaction as physical. Right. So the kid says that's what interactions are. They're physical. Right. And usually like... Family members hit each other. It's, right. This is the way it is. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Or they, and, or they give, you know, I see little kids that they go from hitting and then the hitting stops and then it, it's a new technique. It's pinching or when the brother or sister turns or the parent turns, then it's like kicking them or swiping under their feet. Like it's something new. Yeah. Because they learn to adapt and... And, and, and this is, you know, and parents are like, why are they doing that? And I'm like, well, <laughs> usually there's a reason. <laughs> yep. You know, and, and, and most No of, consequence attached to the action. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, that, and that's the thing. So when you don't have, going back to the codependency thing, when you're trying to build a connection, but you're having examples like those things that we just mentioned, those are disconnecting. You know, there's, I mean... I'm not. I'm not always a big fan of use your inside voice, and you know sometimes you have to. You, sometimes you have to raise your voice, but you yep. know, I'm very much of the mind of talking through something with little kids to say this is why you don't do that. This is why you don't do that. And I usually get someone at seven or eight years old with parents saying, "Yeah, well, they don't listen." That's because you weren't doing that when they were three. Yeah. And this is going back to the early years of fostering independence for the child that's age appropriate. So when they see me at eight and nine years old, you're not saying, well, they're out of control. They're out of control, not because they're out of control now. They've been out of control, and this yep. has been ramping up. And you, and, and I can blatantly say that across the line. You can see in a good history, when you take the family history of, of, of people coming in, you can see it ramping. Yeah. And then as a psychologist, we can predictively see where this is going to go as a teenager for a boy or a girl and what behaviors are going to fall out of it based on what 
what parent is doing what, how they're interacting, what's happened, because human nature just follows these patterns. So you can see, you know, I can see when there's going to be an addiction issue typically in a family when I've got a little one in the room. I can usually see when there's two or three kids in a family, which one's going to have a codependency issue and which one's not and why. Yeah. Um, and I try to identify that for parents because oftentimes parents, because they know I do addiction work, they'll come in and say, hey, you know, my I, my husband was an addict and he, you know, he's passed away now and what's going to happen and here's my kid, you know, so yep. we... We use that as a way to understand and try to not foster codependent relationships so that people have connection um, because it's super important that codependency kind of unravels itself to get out of the way. It's so important to parent ahead. You have to deal with nine-year-old problems at five-year-old. You have to deal with 13-year-old problems at nine, year, nine years old. Right. It's like you're building that basis. You can't deal with a 16-year-old problem at 16. No, and, and, that's, and that's a repeated commentary I have multiple times a week to parents. And they, but... You know, this is happening now, and you know, I, I don't do that. I told you so in my head bubble, I do just because it, it's human nature. But I, I, I'm like, I essentially say in different ways that what you just said 16, 16 year old problem is not a 16 year old problem, it's what happened when when you first came in at seven and you said it's just kids being kids, and I said, not really, yeah, you know, and it's really about taking a good look at what are you doing as an adult, you're responsible as an adult to really be shaping in a good healthy way and if you're shaping your child to be dependent and heavily you know authoritarian parents do this all the time you know authoritarian parents are they're high in task requirement very little warmth so they create an environment of you know do as i say not as i do yep. and they crush self-esteem and self-respect and make a person highly doubtful of themselves to be able to go out and make good decisions in the world for themselves because they always rely on other people and feel very out of control when they don't have someone there to do that for them. Um, super hard to break out of authoritarian parenting because, you know, you it's just so oppressive yeah. um, and it's so negative. And there's so many people that have authoritarian parents thinking that, you know, being strict and structured and actually that leads to heavy amounts of addiction because people can't get connected to other people because they don't know how to have the, uh, a grown-up relationship, so they go to something else that makes them feel good to give them the praise that they never got. Let's reset a little bit because okay. we kind of jumped into the middle of this because codependency, I think, is one of those people... Well, we didn't jump into the middle, but codependency is one of those things that I pe think people know exists, know the terms, have a vague idea of what it is, but don't have a real specific handle on it. So. Right. Uh, what are some of the signs you're in a codependent relationship? Um, doubting yourself, needing to check in with the other person to see if things are okay. Young relationships often have the, are you going to leave me? Are you gonna, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Are you sure you love me? Yeah. Those kinds of things you'll see with teenagers often that you can see that's a sure sign of it. Mm -hmm. um, difficulty maintaining relationships, um, friendships or otherwise. Um self-deprecating self um out loud things like nobody nobody wants to be friends with me nobody really likes me it's okay it happens all the time a person who says yes to everything yep. um people pleaser usually those are signs people whose self-image is poor always it's always reflected though yes their self-image they get their self-image from what their partner or their friends mm -hmm. think of them right and so they try to maintain that image Right, so that yeah. they don't lose 
they don't lose face with the person, so the person, you know, they worry about what the other person thinks to the extreme, so therefore, you know, they, they don't make mistakes, they try to be very perfect to not make mistakes, um, and oftentimes the other person has no input, like, they're not even aware, that, like, they're, they're just going along and not realizing this is what, and that's why a lot of times you'll see, you see it in young people a lot, the relationships will break up fast mm -hmm. because the other person will be like this is the person the other person's either too needy too whiny and that's both girls and boys yeah. men and women it's sure. not just you know women always get the bad rap for oh you know clingy needy uh-uh because you get a lot of men who were raised as boys to be very needy and very clingy towards moms who needed them to be needed right right i need you to need me to need you sort of the underpinning of being a mama's boy right yep. so that whole piece there is really there and people bypass that because you know socially men get a different bank than women do so it's really across the board that needy clingy and dependent relationships have become a bigger part of self-image for teenagers yeah. than they ever were in the past yes. right 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 yeah. i mean when i was growing up relationships were not anything like right. they are now right. nothing like i mm, you know, and even friend, like social group friendships and all those things, they were there, but nothing like it is today and how connected people are and the way that they are connected for a variety of reasons. So, My middle school, we had one couple, and it was like, wow, you know. A couple. That, that was so, quote-unquote, relationship, yeah. if you can have one at, at that age. But nowadays, it's almost like it's a problem if you're not in a relationship. Well, yeah, and, and so it's, it's interesting you say that because I've had kids all the way down to nine yeah. years old talking about can you imagine yeah. dating yeah. you know and i'm like so you know i always i always have a as if you don't have enough going on at nine years old right yeah right and you and and, and so here's the other thing i mean sort of an aside there's there's a huge change uh in the past probably 20 years regarding hormonal changes in kids being younger so the relation so hormonal, oh really that's so, moving physiologically that's moving so, yeah so for so theoretically, there's lots of theories, but one of the big ones is, you know, we've got so many ge genetic modified, that was a mouthful, genetic modified foods and genetic modified milk products, other things that happen that over time we've seen, the, and I think it's more historical because the other theory is more that like we wax and wane in this, like sometimes the puberty hits later in years and it's so trending. But there's something to be said for the theory behind the genetic modified food changing the hormones, which makes puberty earlier which makes kids go towards relationships and talking about those things in that yeah. way much sooner so i've seen a shift anecdotally in my practice for, you know i've been doing this for 24 25 years so i've seen a shift over in the past probably 15 years more about younger and younger and younger kids being much more brought into that now whether that's that theory or also i think that social media seeing young starlets you know that look you know they're 18 years old but in kids minds they're 12 and 13 and they're right. you know that they can all relate because they're young so that yep. it gives them permission to do those things and socially i mean there's a whole bunch of factors but i think just on a genetic physiological level i think that we have shifted a lot around um, food products um, and things that we ingest or things we're exposed to that that produce that and that's not new i mean we've had history of waxing right. and waning of this over time but i think we've just had so much food movement um, with wheat products and soy products and things that are chemically induced that changes things. I think social media has a big role in it because, um, like I said, I, I was laughing. I had one couple in my middle school, and it was a huge thing. But I don't know. 
who knows what kids were doing. I mean, and they weren't officially dating, but kids were hanging out with each Boys and girls were hanging out with each other in neighborhoods and times, yeah. but there wasn't Instagram, there wasn't Facebook right. to, to no catch up with it. And was talking and naming it about, right. like, relationship. Yep. It was just, we're going to play ball. We're yep. going to the field. We're going to the swings. Yep. Whether they were doing that or not, I mean, I know that when I would hang out with friends, we were going and doing the activity. Like, I just remember, we were going to the mall, we went to the mall, and we hung out. We would go to the, which I wasn't allowed to do very often, so it was like a big thing. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, if you went to, we're going to the swings. We went down the swings. We played ball. We did other stuff, and it wasn't that. But yeah. not the stories I hear now. No. <laughs> I would make the listeners probably ears turn if I told you some of the stories. I know. And it's that just, I hear now because I'm like, oh, my goodness. Just in school, the um, level of talk about it, the exchange of text, the, uh, you know, there's just so much stuff going on. Well, and I'm on so, and I'm on a lot of the social media that I see, like kid, you know, some of the kids that I know or that are in my life personally, and I watch their TikToks and I watch their Snapchats and all that, and I cringe. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, oh, and occasionally on the backside or whatever, I'll be like, nice potty mouth, or I'll be like, that's not classy, yeah. or you know, because I'm like, hey, that's not cool, and um, I'm sure I'm getting <laughs> sworn at behind scenes, but it's you know. Socially normally, I'm like, hey, you put, and I remind kids too that when you put this stuff out on social media and you haven't gotten to the college level yet, people can see what you're doing and you don't want that out there. And so if you're dropping f bombs and you're dropping this and you're dropping that and being, yeah, not so professional with your self presentation, that's not a good thing. And people don't get that. And we're at the point now where we've either the parents have been involved in social media. Um, and did kind of the same things at their age, or they're involved in social media now, so they're more tolerant about it. They're right. more desensitized about right. it, right? Yeah, and I, and I get a lot of the, you know, well, it's just, you know, kids being kids, and that is, you know, yeah. that's not, you know, just because... Just, it's not enough. Well, when not some, well, it's kind of, so I always liken it to the, because I go to the extremes because I have to. Well, you know, it's, honestly, that's it's, the... It's uh, like you got a bully. Well, bullies will be bullies. That yeah. is not acceptable behavior. <laughs> you know, this... And or you know, well, you know, boys. No, tell me, yeah. tell me about boys, because you know, not all boys punch each other, and not all boys, you know, do mean things, and not all girls are mean girls. So you know, as I yep. use that, it, that's not okay. And and I'm not of the mind either of like you know, when someone's like, well, you know, the bully has a, has a rough life at home. So you know, just because you know they're saying those things, let's have you shake hands and make up. That doesn't work. No. Psychologically, no, that doesn't no. work, and actually sets up the kid who's being bullied into a really bad situation. And it's, I've done some consults recently on, you know, talk about a codependency relationship in a school system, right? Talk like a systematic, you know, um, or systemic codependency. It's like you're building all these relationships that are really enabling. You're enabling a bully, for instance, to victimize more, and then you turn the victim into a perpetrator. Because they have a because the bully has a bad life. So I've done a few consults in the past couple of years yeah. with some school systems on that. You know, they're like, well, let's get the kids together and talk. I'm like, that's the worst thing that you can do because you're putting the victim in a position where now this kid is this other kid's getting over in front of you as an adult, and they think and now what they're going to do go back to the hitting example. They're going to find a new way to come in on the backside to get at that kid and victimize them without you catching. And if they don't ever do it in front of you, it's like the kids that say, Mom, so-and-so hit me. They're pinching me. And they're like, I did not because you don't see it. And lots of parents say, yep. I didn't see it, so I can't do anything about it. Same thing. Plus, you're putting the bully and the victim on the same moral level. Right. Which is inappropriate. Right. And it's, we're in a 
we're in a society where we don't want to talk about merit and we don't we want to homogenize everybody and equalize exactly. everybody but that per the bully at that point never learns just i'm on the same moral level right. so you know i'm just being who i am right yeah. and 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 you get you get the you know here's here's the parent the school system the parent is making the excuse for the bully to be their behavior is justified even though it's not right and so we want the we want the victim, the bullied child, to understand yeah. the plight of the bully and the family at home. Yeah. Therefore, can you ju can you just take the smack one more time? We're being take one your for head the team. Into the toilet one more time. Yeah. Take one for the team because you yeah. know. And I have seen that quite a few times. Really? Yeah. And you know, again, over a twenty something year career, so I see it. But it's it's enabling the codependency of the system. Of the you know the bully, it's like the family and the in the school system are enabling the victim to be the, the perpetrator. The, how dare the victim report that the bully pulled their hair and yep. and cut it with scissors? Because acknowledging that there's a problem there mm -hmm. reflects badly on the school system. Mm -hmm. So which is like if you it's say their self-esteem. Yeah. Say there's a problem in a family that's reflecting bad on the parenting, and God yep. forbid the parent would actually have to own that they did something. Right. Which goes back to the beginning when we when you said oh it always comes back to the, <laughs> the parents it does it comes back to initially where it starts and where who takes the responsibility oh, that was sarcasm on my I, part I know that it but, <laughs> but always know does come back to the parents but it, it's it is hard I know you were yeah. being sarcastic but so many people get defensive about that and I know you weren't being defensive <laughs> but I but people do they'll be like oh it's always you know psychologists always blame the parents no it's really about understanding. You, you can't go back and fix the past, but you do have to understand, and most people, to fix their own individual self-awareness problem, they have to know where it started so they don't feel the self-blame of, well, I don't know how I got here. Well, here's how you got here. This is how yep. you, now you have to change it. So when we're talking about codependency, you got to stop looking for people who need to, you don't, you have to stop looking for validation from everyone. You have to stop looking for reassurance from everyone. You have to, and that's really hard. And yep. if you don't know why you're doing that, that, Hey, when you think back, and you know your mom and mom didn't let you go to your play dates because you got all of a sudden when you make that connection, you don't have to go back and fix that. The child, as an adult, goes, "Oh, yeah," and then they start seeing it in what they've been doing, and then they can self-correct without you having hands on it at all. Well, this all goes back to self-image. Yeah. And where does a child establish their self-image? Where does a person establish their self-image? Right. In a reflection from their parents. Right. Right. I right. mean, it's just basically that simple. Right. Yeah. Right. And when you have um, kids are really resilient. And so kids who don't come out of their relationships that have been taught codependency, and they come out, you know, fighting through, usually it's because the child has a what I call a yummy person. They have a, a person on the outside who's providing the environment that's countering the other environment enough to counterbalance it for the child to become an adult going, I knew there was something wrong, or I knew there was something going on, or I knew, you know, that kind of thing. So they can really pull it. They'll still have the little struggle, but they'll get through it because they had this yummy person giving them the unconditional love, the explanations, the don't worry about it, that's not accurate, you know, whatever it is to, to give them that balance. Yeah. And most kids have it somewhere. The problem with it is that the duration isn't long enough. Like they might have a teacher or coach that might last a, a, a year versus you know, like a grandparent or someone that's long-term. So 
anecdotally only, I see much more success when people have had a, a long-term yummy person in their life, giving them those emotional yummies. It often comes too late, too. Yes. But I remember, I remember as a kid, I, there were certain issues in my household. You know, but I remember as a kid becoming friends with somebody and going over their house, and all of a sudden this whole world opened up to me because I saw this family that, wow, this is cool. You know, right. these people love each other. They love the kids. It's a great environment. Everybody's good. And it's like, wow, it can be like this. Right. You know, because as a kid growing up, you think it's your normal. environment is what it is. It's right. That's the way has, it goes. Right. And then all of a sudden you see another family where it's like, wow, this is a lot better. Right. You know. Right. And 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 so to the point where and this is a famous saying. Right. I'm, I'm sure you've heard this before. Kids love structure. Yes. They will fight like hell against it. Absolutely. But they love it. Well, they thrive. Kids thrive in structure. Yeah. They fall apart and become disasters and chaotic and disorganized and mess and all kinds of things when they have no structure or and kids, when they have minimal or inconsistent structure yeah. too. And kids rise and fall to expectations. Right. It's okay to expect a certain level of behavior. It's okay to expect a certain level of accomplishment. It's okay to expect things from them because they will tend to meet it. Right. Yeah. And and as soon as as soon as you don't do a follow through on an expectation oh, you set yeah. with a kid, you've just Forget lowered it. the expectation. Yeah. They know how to get around it. So yep. they don't ever have to so I mean, I talk a lot about this in my practice. This could be our next show. Is about, you know, striving for mediocrity. Hmm. I, you know, that it's uh, sort of tongue in cheek, but you know, no parent really wants their kid to be mediocre or really but I often see, like, just strive for mediocrity because there's, there's no, not no, there's minimal structure to give a child right. accountability. Um, you do that one more time, I'm taking your phone away. You take the phone away, how long has it gone for? A week, and you give it back to them in a day. That's a problem. Yeah, that's a real problem. And that happens, certain types of parenting that happens a lot. But, you know, by and large, I don't see that as much, but I do see it in some cases. And you see the kids as teenagers much more all over the place and never know, chaotic disorganized yeah. not able to function as well seeking love in all the wrong places because they're looking for places to give them yep. the reinforcement that they're okay never ever set a consequence you are not willing to follow through that's on. right never ever right and when people are like you're grounded for a month i if they're in yeah. my office i always say do you mean that yeah like, yes i'm like do you really mean that because i'm going to hold you to that yeah so you know I have a, a little And the first time you overextend, for me it was, I remember the first time I overextended. And it, it got painful for me yeah. to continue the consequence as long as I said it was going to continue. Well, and that's, and that's one of the downsides of when a parent says it. I'll hold them to it. I'll say, you just gave a huge consequence. This is going to be really painful for you because they're yeah. going to drive you crazy. Yeah. And they're like, you know, and so then you get them to say, then all of a sudden, well, I gave up on it because they were driving me crazy. And yeah. I'm like, now they know where your limit is, so now they know how to move. Right. And from an athlete standpoint, everybody yes. has this story. When we talk about people like structure and expectations, everyone has the story of that coach that was a nightmare. Yes. But everybody who leaves that coach as adults love that coach. Mm -hmm. They always <clears throat> think of that coach fondly. Well. <laughs> assuming they're good and assuming. <laughs> I'm in my head going, well. Yeah. Uh, not in the business I am in completely, but yes, I, I do get your but point. But you work your way up through high school sports, and you run into right. that coach that has this reputation. And yes, he is hard on you, but six or eight months into the season, he looks at you and goes, good job. 
and that means right. something. Well, the, because you're talking about the difference in, in the relationship of being either authoritarian, which is not healthy, which is right. the outcome that I went to in my head of like, oh, those are the ones I see a lot, versus authoritative. So authoritative is your best type of parenting, your best type of coaching, which is high in expectation task requirement and high in praise. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean like, oh, great, just do a good job. It means like you did a great job and I'm going to give you the feedback on it appropriately to what was there and then I'm going to reset the expectation and we're going to have this mutual that's where you get the go those good coaches that give yeah. you the that kids will keep doing for doing to for doing for and you will get the kids that will drop out from the coaches that are just yeah. mean nasty authoritarians you know tyrant yeah right well so that's the, that's the difference between authentic and not authentic right and that's yeah. also that's also a piece of of codependency of control you get you know, we're talking ath yeah. athletes is athletes perform to their peak when they have a good relationship with their coach that's not codependent. If an athlete is codependent on a tyrannical, authoritarian, dictating type of coach, they typically will do poorly. Yeah. They'll perform they may be a high end athlete, but they won't perform as well as the one that has the other the other type of coach. You know, you see that yeah. in professional football. I see that in professional football players all the time. Sure. Like I could line up the coaches and be like, that one's going to get you to produce and that one's not. <laughs> Just because of the relationship that they build with their players. Yeah. And that makes a difference. So it's the same thing. We can, we can use that codependency piece across the board of like, it's based on relationship and connecting and, and or disconnecting. You know, people love going in and practicing to feel good and to make themselves feel good and the outcome of the coach is like, awesome job. This is what we got to work on versus dreading coming in and having a coach being like, you're so slow. You're not moving. Stop doing that. You're eating too much. You're fat. Like, yeah. okay. Yeah. And then, then, then it's immediately, look at what you've done. You've done nothing. And this is what you pay me yeah. with that authoritarian codependency. Like now the, now the kid, kids especially want to prove to that coach, no, I'm good enough. I'm good enough. So you asked me earlier, what's a sign? It's, you know, one of the signs of seeing codependency is a person's often looking for the approval of, am I good enough? Am yeah. I good enough? Right. Please love me. Please yeah. love me, you know, essentially. Um, and All my worth is tied up in my worth to you. To you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I need you to need me to need you. Yeah. <laughs> I love that saying. <laughs> I've been saying that for a long time. I don't know how long I've been saying that, but I, it's my catch-all for codependency. I need you to need me to need you. Excellent. Anyway, mm -hmm. on that uncodependent note, <laughs> um, I could say, Lou, do you love me? No. <laughs> of course I do. Okay. Um, I was kidding. Um, have a great week. Yeah. And everyone out there listening, thank you for listening this morning. I saw a few people jump in and say good morning. Good morning. Um, thank you. And we will be talking more about this because I know this has been a hot topic about people talking about addiction and codependency and child life parenting yeah parenting and so on and so forth coming into the new year so catch me on all my old podcasts on any of your favorite podcast stations and i will see you all next week <laughs>